So I've got a couple of things on my heart this morning, and I'd love for you to grab your Bibles out. I want to share a few things, and then I have a, a particular direction that I'd like to go to in terms of ministry time. So grab your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to head to 2 Timothy. I'm going to continue on with some words, some instruction that Paul gives to his spiritual son, Timothy. And then see what the Lord might want to do. So let me pray as you turn there. <sighs> Lord, we just come this morning as your people. In the one sense, so thankful for who you are and for what you've done. But in another sense, recognizing our need. Our need for your grace, our need for your touch in our lives our need for your leading, your inspiration, your conviction at times. But Lord, I thank you that you are our good shepherd, that you are the God who's promised to lead us. In fact, you even said that we would know as your sheep your voice. And so I pray that you would come and that you'd lead us this morning, wherever you'd have us go. We just give you permission, Lord. We thank you that you're a gracious and loving God that is always at work in our hearts and lives. You're always at work in our midst. And where we need to be stilled, would you still our hearts to see you? That where we need a fresh dose of your joy, would you fill us to overflowing that your joy might be our strength? that where we need refreshment, that your spirit of life would well up a spring within us this morning, that where we need hope, that the God of all hope would fill us with hope. But just give us listening ears to hear whatever it is that you're saying to each one of us this morning. We pray, may your word as it's proclaimed bear fruit for your glory in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. One amen. That's a good start. Amen. Amen. If you uh, came in a little later, we're heading to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 14. And let me give you two brief thoughts in terms of context. Context is always important. But we were in this passage, I think, two weeks ago. And I spent some time painting and setting the scene. And this is not only Paul's last letter that he writes, but it's his last letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. So these are words of tenderness, they're words of intimacy, they're not written to necessarily correct any doctrinal or other error, they're written to encourage and inspire his son. As a loving father would write, and as he says himself, I'm at the end of my journey, my journey, my race has been run, my fight has been fought. But you have a race to run. You have a fight before you. And this is what I would encourage you with. And so we talked a few weeks ago about this incredible promise of hope. Remembering, of course, that the context of his words as well, he begins encouraging his son Timothy in chapter 3, verse 1, saying, Understand this, that in the last days there will be difficult times. And it's a theme that he revisits throughout this final discourse to Timothy. He says, there will be difficulties. There will be tough times. And I think sometimes we forget the reality 
that we live in the midst of a battle. We do. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of our God. And though our enemy is a defeated foe, we will not see the full consummation of the victorious return of Christ and the final death of sin, removal of sin. We won't see that until he returns again. It will come. It's a little bit like uh, the other day I had uh, a couple of my girls out and we were pruning prickle bushes at our 10-acre block. We've got uh, rocks and prickle bushes are a feature, a great feature. If you're after prickle bushes, I've had a few people turn up with their trailers and say, oh, I heard you had a lot of rocks. And they've taken a few rocks away with them. So if I joke, if ministry goes bad, I've got a, a big rock supply. You can all come and purchase rocks. But we've got lots of thistle bushes as well. And we chopped out this particular big bush and my girls were giving me a hand. And it was a defeated bush. But somehow as this thing fell down, it sort of fell and... And it's horrible thistles. You know those thistles that kind of get into your clothes and you can't remove them? And so she had struggled and struggled, my, uh, my little girl, and got herself worse and worse, stuck in the midst of this thistle bush. So, of course, she came to me and we removed all of the thistles, some of them one by one. It was a, a long process. But in the same way that it was a defeated thickle bush, but it still had a bit of a sting. You know, we have a defeated enemy. Christ came and he won the victory on the cross. But we still live on a fallen planet. There's still the, the signs and the issue of sin that surrounds us in this broken world in which we live. But we don't want to camp there too long because Paul sets the scene. But he says, remember, Timothy, you have hope. You have this indestructible, unquenchable hope. He says, I'm at the end of my journey and I want to encourage you that it is all worthwhile. It is all worthwhile. Keep going. Keep running the race. Keep fighting the good fight. Never give up. You have this hope that will burn within you in the midst of everything that you face. That was the message from a few weeks ago. He also reminds Timothy, he says, remember in the midst of all that there is and all that there will be that you are here for a purpose. You are on this planet for a purpose. You're not here just to idly pass time. To do whatever you can to amuse yourself until we reach the door to eternity. You are here on this planet for a purpose. If you're in this room today and you're breathing in oxygen, and if you're not, you need to check, you have permission. But if you are, if you're still breathing in oxygen, then you have been put on this planet for a purpose. That's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, remember this. There is a gospel to be preached. There is a God to be glorified. Keep pursuing the purpose that God has for you. It might be a purpose in prayer. It might be a purpose as a, a parent raising children. It might be a, whatever the purpose is. God has a purpose for your life. He does. He does. And we need to never lose sight of the purpose that he has called us to individually, the purpose that he has for us as his people as we gather together. So he encourages Timothy in this area of hope, in this area of purpose. And here we go in chapter 3, verse 14. He's going to encourage Timothy about the importance, the priority, and the power of the Scriptures, of the Word of God can see your excitement is just growing. It's growing. Here we go. Verse 
Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. And that word there literally, continue, means to remain steadfast. Remain fixed, remain unmovable. Do not be moved. Remembering he's talking about all these things happening, there's difficult times, there's people who'll be doing this, people won't listen to, you, to, to what you have to say, they'll be lovers of play, all of these things. But he says, for you, remain steadfast in what you've learned, what you've believed, knowing from who you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, for all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. How many good works? Every good work that the man, that the woman of God, that the people of God may be equipped for everything that the Lord might have for us. Isn't that an incredible promise? Who wants to be equipped for all that the Lord has? Well, you know the secret? The secret is this. It is His Word. It's the Word of God. I want to encourage us about what it is that we have in our possession. That so often, if we don't take it for granted, perhaps we don't give it quite the level of prominence that it should in our lives. And you see, Paul's encouragement to Timothy, he's not making a case for Scriptures. He's not trying to teach him all about Scripture and what it is and its purpose. He's really just reminding him of allowing Scripture to take its place of prominence in Timothy's lives. And so that's my heart this morning, just to remind us that we have the Word of God. Does it sit on the shelf and gather dust? Does it come out for special occasions? Is it there? Is it the foundation that we build our lives upon? Is it our hope in the midst of hopelessness? Is it our truth in the midst of truthlessness? Is it the foundation, as Adam looked at a little bit last week, that we build our lives upon? Because I pray that it will be. And you see, we could very easily at this point, we could make a case and Paul could have made a case to Timothy convincing him of what Scripture is. We could have looked at its inerrancy. That just means... Fancy word meaning that it is without error. And there's plenty of scholarly work that's been done on that particular topic. I always look from time to time at um, some of the articles that come out talking about the errors that are through Scripture. And I don't claim to have read every single piece of research on the topic. But I've never come across any significant issue. We can say with confidence that we have an error-free and inerrant Word of God. We could look at its internal consistency, which is nothing short of miraculous. You know, if ever you need evidence of God, of who He is and His nature, you can look at His Word. And I say, if ever you need evidence, people often say that. They're like, well, prove to me that God exists. You know, if God really exists, if God really existed, He would give me a sign. Anyone heard that? Surely He'd give me a sign. You know, there'd be, there'd be something that had happened. And my first response to that is I said, well, you're looking for a sign. I mean, what greater sign could there be than God himself descending from heaven, putting on flesh, walking in our shoes to teach us the way, to show us the way himself? He didn't send an angel. 
He didn't send a witness. He came himself and he bled and he died on a cross and he took your sin upon himself. What, could, what more could possibly God possibly do? What more could he possibly do? What greatest sign could he ever give humanity? But there's people who want more signs. So if you want another sign, we have his word. We could look at its internal consistency, 66 books, 40 authors, 1,600 years, and yet it is internally consistent. You see, other holy books are written, which will remain nameless, so-called holy books, written by one person over a period of months and are full of errors, inconsistencies and issues from cover to cover. And yet the Bible is not. You see, let me ask you this question. Where's the chapter on salvation? Where's the chapter on grace? Where's the chapter on the nature and the character of God? The truth is there isn't a chapter. It's all the way through. And yet it is all written over thousands of years. It is internally consistent. We could easily talk for some time, and I won't, I'll resist, on the proven prophetic fulfillment that we see in our scriptures. It's a pet love of mine, a pet area of study that I've always enjoyed considering. In fact, Isaiah 46.10 This is what God himself says. I am the God that declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. My cancel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I like that last little bit. The NIV puts it this way. Only I, says God, only I can tell you the future before it happens. That's what he claims. And in fact, if we look at his scripture, it is full of prophecies from God. Right the way from the Garden of Eden all the way through to the book of Revelation. God is a God who prophesies. In fact, it says in Scripture that God does nothing without first revealing it to the prophets. He's a God who delights to reveal what he is going to do so that when he does it, he fulfills his prophetic word and proves himself to be faithful, proves himself to be with 100% accuracy the, the God and the only God that can tell the end from the beginning. And we could look at statistics, as people love to do, and prophecies concerning the coming of Christ and all these details that were fulfilled. But I'd simply say this, it just it boggles my mind at times. I, I tear my hair out as after the American elections, for example, there was a, an article on the front page of news.com, I think it was elsewhere as well, talking about this blind Bulgarian mystic. Anyone see this particular article? Who'd predicted the outcome of the election? Now, it's always a lot easier to predict the outcome after the election. But supposedly, this blind Bulgarian mystic not only predicted that one, but the last election as well, and two or three other significant um, occurrences in, in her lifetime. She's an older lady. And in fact, they said she's predicted hundreds of things. And you know, here's an example of at least five or six that have actually happened. Now, five or six out of a hundred whilst that might be a good batting average for the Australian cricket team. (laughs) Just saying. (sighs) When it comes to determining the accuracy of one's prophetic prowess, it's not a good average, whereas this Bible predicts human history with 100% accuracy. It proves that this is the Word of God and that God, in fact, as he claims, is the only one who can... Determine things and tell us the future before it happens. And not only does he prophesy and predict the future of the world, the destiny of the world, but he predicts, he tells us all about our personal destiny. 
There is no book that is anything close to this. Someone once asked a great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, it's a quote I've always liked, had it on my office wall at one point. He said, Charles or Mr. Spurgeon, would you be prepared to defend the word of God? Would you be prepared to defend? He said, he laughed. He said, defend it. Be like trying to defend a lion. God does, God's word doesn't need defending. It needs to be let out of its cage and it will defend itself. What he says, it's, it's, the, it's powerful, it's living, it's active. It just needs to be proclaimed, it needs to be preached. And for us, it needs to be read. It needs to be given its place of prominence in our lives. So I want to encourage us. We could, we could go down all of those particular avenues and many more, but I simply, as Paul encourages Timothy, I want to encourage us of the importance and the priority of God's Word. And Paul does that in two ways. Number one, in verse 16, he, he encourages and reminds Timothy that Scripture is from God. It is God's Word. A very well-known passage. All Scripture, he said, is breathed out by God. ESV says breathed out. Some other translations, the King James and New King James, talk about inspiration. And that too is true, although inspiration at times can give us this impression that somehow the Lord gave people, say, heightened abilities to be able to write the Word of God, whereas the picture here is very different. It's saying this literally is God's breath or it's God's Word. This is from God. And there's a big difference between the two. You see, as we look through Scripture, God's Word creates. If we look at the creation of man, God breathes life into Adam. It's God's, worth. it's God's Word that raises the dead. As He said, Lazarus, come forth. It's God's Word that cleanses the leper. It's God's Word that calms the storm. Even creation itself bows its knee to God's Word. Be still and the storm is still. And this is literally telling us that what we have here is God's word in distilled and written form. It's not just the writers who are inspired to write. It's the words themselves that are inspired in that they come from God. This is God's word. That's why it's living. That's why it's active. That's why it's worthy of our attention at all times. We live in an era where information is available like never before. And where everybody seems to have an opinion on everything. In fact, there was an old uh, Jewish saying that was, went something like this. You get 12 rabbis in, together in a room and you'll get 14 different opinions. And these days, I think you get 12 people and thanks to Facebook and there's a, a medium for opinions, you get 12 people and you get 1,200 opinions. Everyone's got an opinion about something and they want to tell the world. That's why I try and refrain from putting my opinion out there in the public domain because I don't think it actually ends up helping anybody. We live in an era where there's so much Christian literature. There's all sorts of viewpoints. There's books about this and books about that. And we're all rushing to know, well, what is the latest celebrity? Be it Christian celebrity or celebrity in the world. I don't know why celebrities are the, the focal point and the voice, the speakers of today's society. But we want to know, what, what do they say about this issue? What does this book say about this issue? And that's fine. That's not bad. But there is only one book that is literally God's Word. It's only one. It's just one. And this should have a place of prominence, of honor in our lives above all other 
things. Recognize, Paul is saying to Timothy, the gift you've been given. Recognize what this is. It's the Word of God. Always seems interesting to me that the Word of God above everything else, above all other holy books, is what comes under attack more than anything else. Just this past week, I happened to read an article. It was on Charisma News talking about a Ten Commandments monument that was erected on the lawn of a city hall in New Mexico. An interesting case in that this one was not paid for by public funds. Someone had privately paid for this and donated it to the city hall and they'd erected a monument of the Ten Commandments and, of course, people in the community complained. But they said, well, we didn't actually pay for it. It was a gift. And so there were some technicalities there, but it went to court and the end result just this week was they were commanded to remove the Ten Commandments from the lawn of the town hall in New Mexico because it was offensive. And yet at the same time, it was back in September, I think, where in the middle of New York Central Park, they erected as a monument, and this, this is true, you can look this up, but they found, I don't even know where you'd find this sort of thing, but they've erected this big doorway, which apparently is the entranceway, or the doorway, the archway into the Temple of Baal. That's what it is. The Temple of Baal. It's in the middle of New York. You can look it up. Temple of Baal, New York City. And no one's heard about it because, I mean, has, no one's batted an eyelid. This is a wonderful thing. And I remember I've shared this story before, but when we had um, our eldest daughter in public preschool, and we've had some really good experiences with public preschool, we've had some not so good experiences, and we got one particular teacher who was just into everything and anything, new age posters, all sorts of paraphernalia around the room. Normally the kids in preschool have a little nap in the afternoon where she'd take them through guided meditation and yoga and tai chi and you name it, she was into it. And some of the reading material she'd had for them, she's like, oh, I just love to expose them to all different things. Isn't this wonderful? So it was a book about how to cast spells and magic. And Ali and I were like, whoa. And so as we were chatting to her and having a conversation, she could not understand. It just did, it just no framework for why someone would be offended with all of these things that she was teaching our young preschool children. And I said to her, I said, well, how about this? You know, you're doing all your stuff. And I said, this is a genuine offer. It's on the table. I would be happy to come in once a week and I'll bring my Bible and I'll teach the kids about Jesus. And I'll, I'll, and I'll tell them stories and I'll talk, talk all about God. I can even bring my guitar in. I can teach them some worship songs and we'll exalt, praise the name of Jesus. And the further I went in, the wider her face got. She looked at me in horror. She said, well, that would be totally inappropriate. And I said, well, what's the difference? Why is it that anything goes but not the Word of God? And particularly, don't mention the name Jesus. That's a sermon for another day. I believe it's this because there is a power to the Word of God. The enemy will do everything he has right from the very beginning to quench the Word, to remove the Word, to get us to leave it on the shelf and not open up and recognize and realize and appropriate the power of the Word of God that is available to us. So Paul reminds Timothy of its inspiration, and very quickly Paul reminds Timothy of its application. As he goes on, he's saying it's inspired, it's God's Word, and then in the very next phrase, he said it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped 
for every good work. And I love this because he's saying it's a supernatural word. It's God's word. It's inspired. But there's a very natural application. It teaches. It trains. It equips. Supernatural word. Natural application. So very quickly, first of all, it teaches us. We need a teacher. This world says, well, you know, there is no truth, as Adam talked about last week. Just do whatever you, know, you feel is right. How's that working for us? It could just be me, but it seems that it's not cutting the mustard. We need a teacher, and the Word of God has been given to us to instruct us. I love in uh, the beginning of the book of Psalms, it talks about how do we keep our ways pure? How does a young man keep his way pure? How many of you would like to know how to sin less? Nobody. Okay. We're a room of holy people. Fantastic. Well, I would. I'd like to. It talks in there about I treasure the word of God in my heart. It's God's word that keeps me on line. It teaches me. Secondly, it says it trains. It trains us in righteousness. Let's think about that for a minute. You see, training requires training. Training requires effort. Training requires us to actually do something. James 1, 2, 2 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. See, this is given to us not so that we can have some nice instruction, some good theologies, so that I can get up and preach a message with three points and some good humorous illustrations. It's not given to us just for information, but for transformation. But in order for it to transform our lives, we have to grab a hold of it and put it into place, put it into action. It is there for training. And I love that picture because I have kind of a a love-hate relationship with exercise. And if I'm honest, there's times in my life, and you're probably like this too, you get on a big exercise bent. You're like, yes, here we go. This is fantastic. I'm going to run. I'm going to swim. I'm going to lift weights. I'm going to do it all. And... Normally or often, there's a bit of enthusiasm as you start, isn't there? And you're going, it's great, and you're seeing some results, and you're feeling better, and then something transpires, and the weather gets colder, and you sort of lose your motivation. Maybe you're not quite getting the results that you once did. And sometimes you kind of force yourself to do it just because you know that it's good for you and you should be doing it, but often you don't. And the less you do it, the more you lose your motivation not to do it. Do you find that? So in the same way, this this is given to us for training. And there are times like when I first got saved in my latter teenage years, I had a passion for the Word of God. Like you just devour it and you read it and it's inspirational. And then you have other times in your life where it's a bit of a slog. And it's those times where the going has to get tough. And we've got to say we're we're doing this not because there's warms and warm, fuzzy feelings every time we read it, but because we know that this is given to us for our training. When it's easy, when it's hard. I happened to see this particular week, and I wouldn't expect you to have noticed this article, but I did have a period in my life where I was big on lifting weights and uh, getting as huge as physically possible. Very hard to tell now. I know. But I I came across this guy. I still follow some of the, the weightlifters around the world. There's a young guy. He's currently Britain's strongest man. His name is Eddie Hall. His nickname is The Beast. The Beast. Weighs 180 kilos. There's a picture of him next to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger looks like just a little something matchstick, little matchstick. 
that this guy is massive. He's huge. He's got the world record for the deadlift, the, the strongest man deadlift, 500 kilos, half a ton. You can go and uh, give that one a crack as you get home and appreciate his dedication. And so they, they were saying to him, Eddie Hall, in this article, they said, well, you know, what's the secret? He's only 28, so he's a relatively young fella in the world of strongman. What's your secret? He said, it's very simple. If you want to be the best, you've got to train the hardest. That's it. And so he trains for 10 to 12 hours a day. 10 to 12 hours a day, this big guy. But see, the same is true of us. The same is true in any area of life. If you want this to work, if you want it to have power, you've got to allow it to teach you, but you've got to put it into action. What's the point in reading it if you're never going to apply it in your own life? And then finally, so it teaches, it trains, and it equips. We want to be equipped. It literally says, Job 23, 12, he says, Your words are more to me than my daily bread. It's spiritual nourishment. It feeds us. It sustains us. It gives us everything that we need. And I, I think of it this way, you know, in so many ways, our physical body, I believe God's given us to represent our spiritual body. And how much time do we spend each week thinking about what we're going to eat, where we're going to go for dinner, we plan the menu, we spend time cooking and preparing, and that's fine, that's good. God wants us to enjoy food. Praise God for food. That's a wonderful thing. But how much do we time, spend, time do we spend feeding our spirits, looking at ways to nurture us, pl- planning out? What can we do to nurture, to feed, to sustain our soul, our spirit man. Well, Psalm 119, oh, sorry, Psalm 19, verse 10, it talks about God's word, more to be desired than gold, even much more fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb is God's word to us. And what if I said to you this morning, I gave you this challenge and said, I, I want to give $1,000 I'm not saying this, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Just in case you're wondering. $1,000 per scripture verse that you can learn and memorize and meditate upon and put into action in your life before we gather together next Sunday. Would I be a very poor man? Yes, I would. I hope so. I hope I would be very poor because that might give you some motivation to study his word. And yet, the scripture tells us that his word is worth to us far more than $1,000. It's priceless. It's worth more than gold. So why is it that we don't have a greater passion for His Word and recognize what it is that we have? So Paul reminds Timothy of the inspiration of God's Word. He reminds us of the application, that it teaches us, that it trains us, that equips us. And he doesn't say it in here, but one of the most wonderful things that I would encourage us is that it tells us of who he is. It tells us of the love of a Savior. It doesn't just introduce us to principles, but to the person of Jesus Christ. This is his personal love letter to you and I, written in blood on a wooden cross. A truth so radical and revolutionary that literally... It would change our lives and our eternal destiny if we would only let it.
So I want to encourage us this morning to allow his word to take its rightful place in our lives, a place of prominence, of power, recognizing its inspiration and its application, that we would be a people here at Vision that love his word. This is the breath of God that long for his word, more to be desired than gold, but then who live his word, who grab a hold of it, live it out. Let it teach us, let it train us, and let it equip us for every good work. Amen. End of sermon. But before I let you go, I would love if the worship team could come back. And I know this doesn't have any direct reference or relation to the message itself. But I just had a sense as I was praying for this morning, Lord, what is it you want to do? And I felt like the Lord reminded me from Ephesians, from Acts, where it talks about just being filled afresh with his Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, I am the living water. He who comes to me will never thirst again, but will have within him a spring that flows up to everlasting life. And so if there's anyone this morning, you're welcome to come forward for prayer about anything, but particularly as the worship team concludes with a song, I'd love to invite you to come forward. If you just would like a fresh filling of His presence, of His grace and His goodness this morning. It could be a top-up. It could be that you're feeling desperately dry. And I'd love for the prayer team just to lay hands on you with that prayer. Just be filled afresh. You see, He wants us to be a people who love His Word, but He wants us to be a people who are full of His presence. So let's pray. Close your eyes. Lord, we thank You for this time that we've had together this morning. We pray You continue to remind us that You're a God who reigns above all that we are and all that is around us. Lord, would You remind us of the power, the prominence, of your word, your God-breathed word, and all that means for us. And would we leave this morning as a people full, overflowing with your presence. I pray that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.